Chapter thirty five of the Milky Way. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Milky Way by F. Tennyson Jesse. Chapter thirty five. Via Amorous three. Petrarch and Laura. That night I couldn't sleep, and at six o'clock I was downstairs and sitting outside under the plane trees, which looked exquisitely cool and green to my tired eyes. The kindly patron brought me some coffee, and as I was sipping it, Peter came strolling out and sat down at my table. I said hello and propelled the coffee pot towards him. I am an early bird, he remarked, in a best bromide company voice. And I see you are the same. No, I'm the worm. I didn't sleep. It's got so hot suddenly. I am going to get away from here. Ah, well, said Peter, it's a long worm that has no turning, as the proverb says. I too think it is time we left. That's why I scraped myself out of bed so early, to make arrangements. If you hadn't been down, I was going to awake you by playing the humoresque under your window. At the mention of the humoresque and the memories it conjured up, I bent my head swiftly, so that a fat and idiotic tear should fall unperceived into my coffee. Viv, said Peter, when you have breakfasted, I have ordered you an egg, by the way. Go upstairs, put on your bonnet. Yes, it is not masculine ignorance. I mean your motor bonnet. Cast your belongings together to be sent on by the petite vitesse, and be ready here in half an hour. I sat with my mouth open, and the tears suspended in my eyes. Ready for what? I asked. When I was a little girl, replied Peter severely, I was taught the following rhyme. Speak when you're spoken to, do as you're bid. Shut the door after you, and you'll never be chid. That's all I have to say on the subject at present. This correspondence must now cease. May I say anything to the others? I asked meekly. If you like, you may leave a note on your pincushion in orthodox style. But I must have something to say in it, I objected. Say that we have gone on. Gone on, said I densely. But why? Petrarch and his Laura, stupid. Viv. Here his hand came over the table and caught mine. Have you forgotten? That we're on a via amorous. That you've still got something to learn, and that I, with the help of Petrarch and Laura, am going to teach it to you. No, I hadn't forgotten, but, oh, Peter, I thought you had. I did not leave a note on my pincushion, but when all my preparations were complete, crept into Chloe's room. She was still asleep, but I heartlessly awoke her, and managed to instill into her drowsy brain that Peter and I were going on. She put her arms round my neck and murmured that she hoped I would be happy, and would I please tell Madame not to send up her breakfast till she rang for it? 
Good-bye, you lazy thing, I said, with all the unbearable virtue of the early riser. Good-bye, and Chloe, I want to say, and I want you to say it to Joe for me, that I'm sorry I've been such a cross pig lately. You haven't, not a bit, declared Chloe generously, but with a sad lack of truth, and we exchanged an embrace that, on my side, was not entirely innocent of egg. The pea-green car, with a chauffeur called from the neighboring garage, was waiting outside, and as he tucked me in, Peter informed me that Monsieur Pouletin had lent it to take us wherever we wanted to go. And where do we want to go? I asked. Not to Avignon again, surely. No, to Vaucluse, of course. I think it's awfully nice of Telemaque, said I. Not a bad old chap, agreed Peter. A very good chap, I declared, and added, very. We talked hardly at all as the car tore along the fresh morning roads but I felt the mistrust and soreness of the past week or so being blown away from me, and I saw by the backward tilt of Peter's head and the light in his narrowed eyes that he too was being swept clean of the depression which had lain upon him. At the village of Vaucluse we dismissed the pea-green car with a message of thanks and farewell to Telemaque and then set off on foot up the valley. Vaucluse Valley is one of those places which, from the intensity and beauty of the passion associated with it and breathed into its air, seems a more poetic mood, a state of mind, a lovely emanation and memorial of the passionate spirit which sang and loved there, than an actual place it is impossible to look at that towering semicircle of cliff which makes a great amphitheatre of the valley's end without imagining how petrarch's eyes must have gazed upon it up to the cloud-wrapped gleaming snow-peaks above and it is impossible to look downwards again to the river that rises in the hollow of the cliffs without a picture of laura as he saw her bathing her white feet in its waters. "'Read it to me,' said Peter, lying in the grass at my feet. "'You know, the one about the river.' I opened my tattered little volume of the most divine love-songs ever written, and read him the one beginning, "'Chiare fresche e dolci acque,' the exquisite cadences of which fall with as inevitable a grace as the water that it praises. "'Oh, oh,' said Peter, rubbing his forehead in the grass, "'to have written it. Well, it's divine, even to read it. Aire sacro sereno. Isn't that just what one feels here? It's not so much the passion of Petrarch as the cold, clear, unruffled serenity of laura that lives on here did she ever love him i wonder i mused it seems impossible that any woman could have things like that written to her and remain unmoved why it must have been like being wooed by a god that she remained unwon we all know 
think of his pallor and his pain. As to being unmoved, I can't think it. Although the whole impression of Laura always is of someone aloof and spiritual. It's no wonder that people accuse him of imposing on the world, for poetic purposes, a Laura who had no real existence. Instead of which, there is a biographer who wishes us to believe she was the wife of a man who scolded her till she cried, and who made her bear ten children. Peter sat up and ran his fingers through his hair. I don't believe that. What does it rest on? A note, which may or may not be genuine, on the margin of a manuscript in the library at Milan. The only thing is, if one gives up belief in that, one has to give up that description of her as a lady in a green mantle sprinkled with violets, over which fell the golden plaits of her hair. I cling rather to that mantle, I must say. But no, she was a simple, wonderfully strong-souled girl who lived in this valley, and he probably saw her first when she was bathing her white self in the dolce aque, which, after all, is worth all the mantles in the world, as you and I know, Viv. And his priestly orders were quite enough bar, to her way of thinking. One needn't stick in a surly husband and ten squalling brats. I am, as was very often apparent, no such idealist as Peter, and though I should rather have liked giving Hugh de Sade and his progeny into limbo, I felt myself unable to do so. If Laura were a simple peasant girl, then how came it that Charles of Luxembourg kissed her at a banquet, a chaste salute which caused Petrarch pangs of envy? I intimated as much to Peter, who would have none of it. The poems, in every line of them, he said, breathed of her as an untouched girl, a vali closa, like her own Vaucluse. All very lovely, said I, if Laura had died young. But, you remember, Petrarch loved her for one and twenty years before, as he says, she took his heart with her to heaven. Laura must have been between forty and fifty when she died. And I think, whether Hugh de Sade scolded her or no, it's better to picture her, when she died of plague, as being a beautiful, stately woman who'd borne ten children, even to a man she didn't love, than as a woman who'd done nothing but keep Petrarch at bay, in some farm beside the Sorg. Perhaps you're right, said Peter suddenly. It spoils the youthful picture, but it beautifies the middle-aged one. And Petrarch had a mistress and two children in Avignon, though that never spoils the story a bit, even if it ought to. In a way, that and Laura's wifehood, if she were a wife, mind I don't quite give in on the subject, both go to make the idyll more perfect, because it becomes so purely of the spirit. 
Viv, I wonder why everyone always talks of love as though it were a definite quantity. It comes differently, and means something different to each person on this earth. Yes, it does. But in theory I think it's much the same to all of us, before we know anything about it in practice. When one is very young, eighteen or nineteen, the future's all wrapped in a beautiful golden mist, and it's ever so far ahead. One feels quite confident that one day this mist will lift, or rather become a beautiful golden light instead of a beautiful golden mist. That was what one meant by falling in love. But it was very remote, as well as very splendid, and meanwhile one was so happy, and life was such fun that one didn't want to hurry. And then? asked Peter, adding, and now? Well, then, then one got nearer to the golden mist, and it was less misty and less golden, and nothing happened at all, and the future had become the present, and one still went on from day to day. And speaking personally, this one had to go out and earn its own living. Well, that's only then. What about now? asked Peter. Oh, but I haven't finished with then yet. The demigod whom I fondly pictured as awaiting me in that golden mist was, would you like to hear what he was like? He was about forty, had a square, clean-shaven jaw, hair going iron-gray on the temples, and velvety gray eyes that, as far as I remember, were to be able to flash like steel if occasion warranted. I suppose men don't look ahead in that way, do they, Peter? Not in that way, not to marriage as the ultimate and most gorgeous firework. Among boys there's an enormous amount of curiosity about women often not of a very nice description. And if, like me, you didn't care for that kind of speculation and talk, well, then you didn't dwell much on it at all, except that you had an idea it must be rather jolly to be in love. And so it is, too. It's the finest thing in the world. All love is, because love is life, love of one's parents, friends, brothers, of one's dog, of the sun and wind and stars, and the little things that move on leaves and among the grass, love of life altogether, and that queer, rare, wonderful thing that holds them all, like the atmosphere holds the world, love of God. It's all of a piece, I have a theory, and here Peter began to wave his hands, as he always did, when he began on that pet sentence of his. I have a theory that love is all in one huge, shining, quivering sheet, like the sea of crystal in the Revelation. And the love that each of us has is derived from it, 
as the rain is originally drawn up from the sea. There's a power o' water in the world, Viv, what with the sea and rivers and lakes and things, but it's really all one piece, you know, perpetually being condensed and drawn up and dissolved and forming again in a vast circle. That's like love. Then one needn't mind if one's love seems all different from what one expected, because it still belongs to the big love, even if what one has is only a raindrop or so. The funny thing is, Peter, I always imagined my iron-jawed, grey-velvet-eyed person would love me most enormously. And now, if I marry, I'd rather do the loving myself. Marriage is different to what one thinks, too, opined Peter. For instance, well, you must know by now that I want to marry you, Viv. I want to have you there, almost always. And no one but you. I shouldn't want to go away to other women, but I shall want to go away to other things. Work, most of all. You're such fun to play with, I think I should always want you for that. But to work one must always go alone. You're the pluckiest, dearest, sweetest thing that ever happened, and I can't do without you. And I've got to have you, because you're as much a necessity of life as air or food, and just as much of a daily miracle as sunrise but I've the wanderlust, and the lone-lust, and you mustn't forget it, dear." I sat silent, stroking the rough, fair head in my lap. But, continued Peter after a minute, there is, to a male creature, something of a feeling of putting his head in a noose when he marries. Less with you than with anyone, which is funny because one always pictures you as so much more with one than most wives. As a rule, women are creatures to go back to. You're a companion on the way. And there's another funny thing. You used to look forward to marriage as a sort of inevitable splendor, and I never looked forward to it at all. So you want to be married more than I do, and yet I want to marry you a sight more fiercely than you want to marry me. I don't want marriage qua marriage, and don't you believe any man who tells you he does. But I do want to marry you. Most particular. Well, you shall, said I. I fell in love with you at once, you know, Viv. You've only walked in, step by step. By the way, and here he knelt up beside me and took my hands. Viv, how much do you? I don't know, Peter dear, I replied truthfully. I know that I couldn't marry anyone but you, and I can see now that even if it had gone as far as fitting on my wedding dress, I could never have married Harry or William or anyone but you. 
I don't think you're a prodigy of genius and handsomeness and goodness, though I do like your funny face, and I adore your mind, and I think you're the goodest person I happen to know. But it's the you-ness of you I like best about you. Off the point. Get back to how much you love me. Oh, I said, and held out my arms. He laid his head against my shoulder, and I pressed it there and kissed it. I don't know, I said again. I only know I want to hold you tight, tight, and that I want to keep away anything that might hurt you, and give you all you want. I'd fight God for you. I'd stand between him and you if he wanted to hurt you. I wish I were God to protect you. We stayed quietly, and only the faint, thin voice of trickling waters made the serene air alive. When did you first know? That you felt all that, I mean, asked Peter at length. Not quite entirely till now. And up to Tarascon I took it and you as a matter of course. It was Aucassin and Nicolette, and Chloe, I feel horrid about it and ashamed. Peter burst out laughing. Good old Telemaque, he said, and I vowed he would be death to romance. Do you remember? I said you couldn't go up any more steps while Telemaque was round spoiling things. And to think it was that. Darling, what a relief to find you so human. And you, said I, when did you begin to know? I always knew I wanted you. If you mean when did I know I must have you, well, Viv, could I see your dearness and not want you? Could I feel your nearness and not know I must have you? He leant towards me, and I suddenly felt I didn't quite want him to kiss me then. I slipped through his arms and stood up. Let's wander a bit, I said. We wandered till those thin, faint voices began to be overpowered by one more insistent. We turned up a shadowy, narrow twist of gorge, where a sharp frost, such as that land of contrasts knows even in April, glittered in the crevices, and the voice grew stronger. Another curve, and we came on something that made us stop and stand gazing up. The cliff curved away from the pass in a dark semicircle that towered far above it, and over the edge of this curve came a slather of water, blue as a kingfisher where the sun shone on it, before it fell over into the shadow. It gave a curious effect, that constantly descending slather of water and the sunlit gleam of colour that always stayed in the same place, so that it almost seemed as though the water ran under it. In mid-air the thin stream changed to a smoking column of spray, only turning again, as by some alchemy, to water 
when it splashed on to the boulders at the cliff's foot. To the right of the fall, a wild cherry tree, thick with pearly blossom, reared up and out from the side of the rock wall, out into the sunlight. The spray was being blown by the breeze on to the cherry tree, and as it drifted it froze. How long we stood looking at it I don't know, but I know the tears were in my eyes for the sheer aching beauty of it. Peter spoke first. Oh, he said, dare I make a poem about it? It's so exquisitely virginal, and yet bridal, too. Look at her coming out into the sunlight, and that perpetually blowing veil of spray drifting over her and freezing on her filigree of white blossom. Isn't she slender and chill, and yet golden white in the sun? I only said, it's Laura herself. It was all I could think. If ever a thing expressed personality, this vision tree expressed that of Petrarch's Laura, the loved and lovely and aloof, still exquisite and fragrant, guarding her valley of Vaucluse as when Petrarch saw her there. Laura, with her sudden shining smile, like angel's mirth. And I've been theorizing about love, said Peter. Love, forgive me. And it was then that Peter and I kissed. End of chapter 35